Open your Bible to the book of Genesis, chapter 43, Genesis chapter 43. And we're going to finish off this chapter where we left off the last time we were in Genesis. But it's a very exciting time through the book of Genesis because in the life of Joseph, we learn one very important thing about the nature or character, the attribute of who God is. And that has to do with the providence of God, understanding his providence. What does that mean? To know and to understand and to discern the providence of God in our lives? Well, really, the definition of providence is God's continual activity in the daily lives of his children. God's activity in the daily life of his children. When you go through seasons, circumstances, daily things, and you say, I know that was God. That is providence, God's activity in your life. And if God is active, even in the details of your life, then we can be rest assured that he is in control of everything we go through. That so much of him is a part of our daily lives. He is involved. The fingerprints of God are all over the lives of his children. Every way that he makes, every door that he closes, everything that he allows, it's God's hand and his involvement in the lives of his children. In fact, Romans 8, 28 and 29, would you write this down again? A memory verse that you should know when it comes to the providence of God. And we know that all things work together for what? Good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What is God doing? He is transforming us. He is conforming us more to the image of his son, Jesus. And although things may not look good in our eyes, through his purpose, he's doing something good with it. He's allowing it to produce something good in our lives. You know, it was the evangelist R.A. Torrey that called Romans 8.28 a soft pillow for a tired heart. Have you come with a tired heart tonight? Well, there's your soft pillow. Romans 8.28 and 29. I know what Torrey was saying. He was pointing that when things go wrong, we can rest on this verse that God still has a plan for your life. Even when things don't go the way that we planned or they're unexpected, he can make every pain, every hardship, every loss work together for good. Remind yourself, even as you're going through different seasons, nothing takes God by surprise. You can go through a situation right now and you may be surprised, but God is not surprised. Nothing undermines his power. He is still all powerful in your life. And yes, he is not the creator of evil and wickedness, but he can sure use it to accomplish his purpose and his plan, no matter what difficult situation, the ultimate plan that he has for your life. He, he will still use it. What is that ultimate plan? that you become more like his son, Jesus. What is God's ultimate plan for your life? That you become more like his son, Jesus. Well, I thought his plan that I would be very successful. That's not what the Bible says. You know what his plan is for you? That you would become more like his son, Jesus. That is God's ultimate plan for us. And in his providence, he's accomplishing all of that. In fact, I want to give you seven verses before we go into the main text regarding the providence of God, why we can rest today, why we can have peace today, why you can have joy today, why this fear that you have can be displaced by grace. In fact, we titled the message tonight that very thing, fear displaced by grace. And the reason why it can be displaced by grace, number one, when thinking of the providence of God, note this, he rules over everything. Remind yourself of that today. He 
rules over everything. In Psalms 103, 19, notice what the psalmist said. The Lord has established his throne in the heaven. His sovereignty rules over all. God has established his throne in the heaven and his sovereignty, his authority, his providence rules over all things. Be confident that he is ruling over everything. Nothing takes him by surprise. Nothing can undermine his power. Number two, notice this when it comes to the providence of God. He is righteous and he is kind in all of his works and deeds. So when you're going through a different situation in life, notice God is still righteous and he is kind in all of his ways and in all of his deeds. Psalms 145 verse 17 says this, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and he is kind in all of his deeds. This is who God is. He who is in control of everything is also kind and righteous in everything. He is a just God. Number three, when it comes to the providence of God, remind yourself of this. He changes the times and the seasons. That's one of the very things that we don't like, change, right? But God is the one that changes times and seasons. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, it would say this. Daniel says, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Sometimes you turn the TV on and you, what is going on? Why are you so afraid? God is ruling over all. He sets up kings and he moves kings. He is in charge of all things. Aren't you grateful we don't trust in politics? You know who you trust in? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that sets up and he is the one that removes the providence of God working through all things. For those of you that think maybe God is not working right now, he is working even when you can't see it. He is laying everything out the way he wants to in his perfect timetable to fulfill his purpose and plan for our lives. It's not our plan, it's his plan. Number four, his promises will come to pass. In his providence, what can you remember? His promises will come to pass. Isaiah 14, 24 says this, the Lord of hosts has sworn saying, surely as I have thought, so it will come to pass. And as I have purpose, so it shall stand. As God has thought it, it will come to pass. As God has sworn, it, it will happen. As God has purposed, it will stand no matter what man does. They can come against you. They can speak about you. They can try to get in the way of God using your life. But if God has promised it, it will come to pass. Number five, his counsel, his direction will stand. Notice everything is about his plan, his wisdom, his guidance, his direction. Isaiah 46.10, notice, declaring the end from the beginning. Isn't that amazing when you open the Bible? We already know how the story ends. You know how it ends? We are in glory with Jesus forever and ever. That's how the story ends. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 46.10, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Things that haven't been done, he's already declared them. My counsel shall stand and I will do all of my pleasure. Who's on the throne? God is on the throne. His counsel will stand. He declares the end from the beginning. Number six, he has your life in his hands. Today, remember that he has your life in his hands. That is the safest place for your life to be in. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verse five, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, oh, house of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter? says the Lord, look as the clay is in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. 
just like the clay is in the potter's hand, so your life is in God's hands. And when he sees that the clay in that pot is marred, what does he do? He crushes it and he begins all over again to make what he desires out of us. Number seven, remember this, when it comes to God's providence for you, he has a plan for your life. Don't ever forget that. In Ephesians 1.11, in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Notice, being predestined, God has a plan according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What does this mean? That God has a plan that he has prepared beforehand according to the counsel of his will for our lives. And Joseph is learning even through mistreatment, even through injustice, even through the test that he's faced, that God is sovereign over all things. His brothers mistreated him. He was falsely accused. But he remained a man of integrity, a man of forgiveness. He kept himself blameless. And he's loving his brothers through this process. I want you to see that. He was being patient with his brothers. He was giving God room to work in his brothers' hearts. He wanted to really see, have my brothers changed? Or do they really just want me because they can use me now? Do you see the discernment in Joseph's life? They used to not like me but now maybe they want me just because they can use me, because they can get something from me. And notice what Joseph does. He doesn't reveal himself to his brothers yet. He's saying, I want to see if your heart's changed. I want to see if your repentance is genuine, if your intentions are pure. I want to find out the spiritual condition of your heart before I reveal of who I am, that I'm your brother. Now, you know what God was doing with that time? God was allowing those tasks to plow in the hearts of his brothers so that they would be ready to know him. That's the same thing that God does oftentimes in our lives. He prepares us so that we are ready to know him. In John chapter 14, what did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. And know this, in his providence, not only is he preparing a place for you, he's also preparing you for the place. I'm going to say that again. Most of you didn't catch that tonight. <laughs> in his providence, not only is he preparing a place for you, right now he's also preparing you for that place. He's working all things according to his good pleasure. And you know how his brothers are learning? His brothers of Joseph, they're learning through grace. They're learning through mercy. Mercy in that they did not receive what they deserved. They were forgiven. Grace in that they did receive what they didn't deserve. They were blessed. So there are three things we'll see here tonight through this chapter. Number one, the conviction. Number two, the confrontation. And number three, the confession, the conviction, the confrontation, and the confession. Notice God's hands working in every activity of his children. Verse 16 picks up where we left off, where his brothers are returning now with Benjamin to Egypt to buy grain. And it took a while. They had spent all the grain that they had. And Jacob sends them back reluctantly, hesitating, not wanting to send Benjamin back because he was Rachel's son who he loved and he already had lost Joseph. And Joseph's heart is torn. He wants to see his brother. So before revealing who he is, he asks them, if you want to see my face again, if you want to buy grain again, you're going to go back to your land and bring back your brother. Then I'll know you're not spies then I'll know you're telling the truth. Simon, your brother, will stay here as a prisoner. Notice, he's wanting to check their hearts. He's wanting to find out if, if their motives are pure, if they've come to repentance, if they change, or are they the same guys that threw him into that pit, that sold him to be a slave? Here is, in verse 16 of chapter 43, undeserved mercy and grace. Undeserved mercy mercy and grace. 
Verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin with him, they're returning back to Egypt. He said to the steward of the house, take these men to my home. Now, I want you to circle that in your Bible. Take these men to my home. He's opening his house, providing them hospitality. Notice what happens here because he's showing kindness to the very people who hurt him the most. Do you see how he's being blameless here? He's not now pushing them away. You know what he's doing? He opened up his house and received them with mercy and with grace, treating those who hurt you with kindness. And it says, take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready for these men will dine with me at noon. Just think about you find out and you bump into those people that hurt you. You know what you want to, you want to turn the other, I don't want to look at those. They're not coming to my house. You know what Joseph said? Bring them to my house, slaughter an animal. Let's give them a feast. Let's treat them with kindness. Let's love them in spite of what they've done to me. I'm going to love them. You want to be blameless while you're going through trials? Love the people that hurt you. Love those that have come against you. Treat them with kindness. Open up your hand to serve them. Don't hold a grudge. Don't be bitter. Then the man did as Joseph ordered, verse 17, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Then the man, notice, as he brought them to the house, now the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house, and they said, it is because of the money which was returned to our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may make a case against us and seize us and take us as slaves with our donkeys. Now this is, you know, I find this very hilarious, verse 18. They're really concerned about their donkeys. <laughs> They're going to take us as, and our donkeys too. <laughs> but why are they afraid? Because they have not made things right with God or with Joseph. You know, suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. Suspicion always haunts the guilty mind. Now they're afraid. Why are they bringing into us into this house? If you did nothing wrong, you should have nothing to be afraid about. You're not living your life looking behind your shoulder. You are bold as a lion. I love what the Proverbs would say. The wicked flee when no one is chasing them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. They, they're afraid here. And notice what happens here in, in, in verse 19 is that they start to explain themselves. They want to give the best defense. And when they drew near to the steward of Joseph's house, they talk with him at the door of the house. Do you see how afraid? They don't even want to go inside. They're at the door and they say, let's stop. We have a few things we need to talk about before we go inside. And you know what they learn here in verse 19? They learn to tell the truth. They learn to tell the truth. Know this, be sure your sin will find you out. You can't hide anything. Sooner or later, you're going to have to tell the truth. And did you know the truth always stands the test of time? So they come out with the truth. The truth is always our best defense. And it says, verse 20, and they said, oh, sir, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it happened when we came to the encampment that we opened our sacks and there each man's money was in his, the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it back in our hand. And we have brought down other money in our hand to buy food. We don't know who put our money in our sacks. <laughs> Listen, this is what happened when we came the first time. And now we've come again and we brought more money and we don't know who put the money in our sack. Afraid, terrified. Why? Because they have an awakened conscience to the sin in their life. You know, it, it is very important that we ask the Lord, show us the areas in where we're compromising so that we can live above reproach. 
Here in verse 23, notice as they tell the truth that the steward of the house responds this way. But he said to them, peace be with you. Do not be afraid. This is the response that he, they received. The response that we receive when telling the truth. And notice what happens here. Peace, shalom. Relax, be calm. Don't be afraid. And notice what the steward of the house does here. Your God, Elohim, he uses this word. Your God, the, the God of the Hebrews, Elohim, and the God of your father has given you treasures in your sacks. It is God, the one that has provided for you. I had your money. And then he brought Simeon out to them. Now, this is amazing here. As you see, verse 23, God in all of the details here. Don't doubt God's provision, he's telling them. It was your God that provided for your grain the first time that you came. In fact, he said here, I had your money. You had that in your sack. I received payment. You, you paid for the grain that you left with. God here was protecting and taking care of all these events. And we know this to be very true where God guides, God provides. It was the goodness of God here that gave that, the money back. And notice what the steward here is expressing. He's expressing even his own faith in the God of Joseph and Jacob. And here they're receiving this unexpected blessing. Now, he didn't accuse them of anything. Instead, notice he invited them to the house and he gave them a blessing of peace. Doesn't condemn, doesn't point the finger, doesn't tell them, look what you did. What does he do? He invites them into the house and gives them a blessing of peace. He has given you, God Elohim, treasure in your sacks. This is how God works mysteriously. Sometimes we don't understand it. And we don't see his invisible hand working, but we do see the results. Lord, we don't know how you did that, but we see the results. We know that it was you. It was the Lord. Instead of condemnation, instead of guilt, instead of shame, they receive an invitation and a blessing of peace. Now notice here in verse 24, so the men brought the man into Joseph's house and gave them water and washed their feet and gave them their donkey's feed. And they made the present ready for Joseph coming at noon, for they heard that he would eat bread with them. Of course, they had a gift that they brought Joseph, so they now prepared that gift to give to him. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed down before him to the earth. Notice verse 26, what happens? Just as it was revealed in the dream, now it was fulfilled. Those brothers that hated him, that rejected him, that mistreated him, that sold him, now they're bowing down before him as it was fulfilled, as it was dreamt. And Joseph does one thing, notice verse 27. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke of? Is he still alive? Here's the integrity of Joseph in verse 27. He doesn't say, I told you, you would bow down to me. <laughs> you notice what he does? He cares. So because he cares about them, there's this word that's so important. He asks about their states. When you care about someone, you notice what you're going to do. You're going to ask, how are you doing? How's the family doing? How's your father doing? That man that you had talked to me about, he, he cared. He had compassion. He had love for them still. He understood their need. And notice what happens in verse 28 is that they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. They answered, he's in good health. He's still alive, your servant, our father. And there in verse 29, it says, then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke of to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. You see, that was his full brother of the same father and the same mother. 
He lifts his eyes. He recognizes Benjamin. He maybe says, is this him? It had been many years. And there you see now his heart yearned, verse 30, for his brother. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. He, he was overwhelmed with emotion, and he went somewhere into his chamber's private room, and he wept there. He, he couldn't hold it. He couldn't help it. With, with haste, he hurried to weep. He went into his private room. He, he broke down, and he wept. Do you see here that he loves them? Although they mistreated him, he's overwhelmed with emotion. By their second visit, by seeing Benjamin his full brother, that he has to go somewhere else to weep. There's a love that constrains him here, Joseph. But now it says that he was able to collect himself in verse 31 and restrain himself. And he washed his face and came out and he restrained himself and said, serve the bread. He gave the command, now serve them. He kept himself under control, now serve them. Open his house, open his heart, serve them. So they set him a place by himself, and then by themselves they were separated. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Notice they were separated, they had their own tables. And Joseph here had to play the part of an Egyptian because he could not be seen to eat with them, having not revealed himself to them yet. So he goes, he has his own table, and they have their own tables, and the Egyptians that were there had their own tables. But notice what happens in verse 33, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, the youngest according to his youth. This is amazing. He has them all sit down according to age. And they're probably just freaking out now. What does he know about us? As they come in into his guests, into his home, he sits them down by birthright. He sits them down according to their age. And it would tell us this. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. They didn't understand. They were unsettled. They didn't know what was happening. And think about the arrow of conviction that penetrated their hearts even deeper now at this point. When they know that they're not in control. When, when they know that they are receiving this undeserved mercy, this undeserved grace, how could it be that us who wronged our brother, who sold him, are now here sitting at the place of honor, having a feast here, and then he took, verse 34, servings to them from before him. I want you to underline that in your Bible. Joseph served them from his own table. Do you see what he did? He served those who mistreated him from his own table. And it means that he took that which was before his table, and he went and he served them, his brothers. This is a true attitude of self-sacrifice of saying, I'm willing to serve those who have hurt me. I'm willing to serve those from my own table who have come against me. <laughs> I'm going to love them. I'm going to serve them. I'm going to be blameless. I'm going to have integrity. And Benjamin, it says there in verse 34, his serving was five times as much as any of theirs. Now he's saying, I'm going to test you again. And Benjamin, my brother, the youngest one, I'm going, to give them, I'm going to give them five times as much as everyone else. He wanted to see if their hearts had truly changed and repented. When they saw the youngest favored as he was one day, how were they going to respond towards him? Were they still going to be jealous? Were they still going to look and, and talk and bicker and speak in their own language, thinking he wouldn't understand? Would they still be hard, carnal men against Benjamin because he got blessed and he got favored? He had five times as much seated at the place of blessing there. He was watching them. He was serving them, but he was also watching them. It says, so they drank and were merry with him. Now, isn't this the story of our lives as well? We being so undeserving, having wronged Christ, having sinned against God's holy standard, 
who were separated from Jesus Christ ourselves, have we not also received mercy and grace the same manner as these brothers? And not only have we received mercy and grace, you notice what the Lord has done? He has seated us in places of blessing now. He has brought us to be seated at heavenly places, to be blessed by the riches of his grace. In Ephesians 2, 4, note this tonight, but God, who is rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4, because of his great love with which he loved us, notice, even when we were dead and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We who were dead, we who had sinned, we who had wronged him, we who had turned our back on God, who were dead in sin, he made us alive, he quickened us back to spiritual life and brought us to sit at heavenly places to enjoy of the riches of his grace. What does this tell us? That God's grace sits us in places we would not deserve. That's God's grace in our lives. How is it that he's using us? God's grace sits us in places we would not deserve. And you know what we're enjoying? The riches of his grace. How did I end up in this situation, you may think? It's the riches of his grace seating you in the places of blessing. Now, they still needed to deal with their sin. They still needed to face what they had done. And they couldn't be self-confident just based off one event, having a false sense of peace, without true repentance, without true forgiveness that had not taken place yet. You know what this reminds us here, even as we go into chapter 44, that you must deal with the sin of the past. Yes, you will be forgiven. Yes, you're a new creation. Yes, all things have passed away, but you still must deal with the sin of the past. And anything short of humble repentance, and genuine confession, anything short of that is not going to bring about reconciliation with God or with other people. You have to say sorry. You have to repent from your heart before God and before other people if you want to see reconciliation. You can't say, well, that happened a long time ago. Make things right. That's why it's important between us and God and us and others that we keep short accounts. Keep short accounts with God. Keep short accounts with other people so that you're blameless from the inside out. And then you don't walk with a false sense of peace thinking that everything's okay when you haven't made things right. You see the conviction that they were under, but notice the confrontation. The, their false confidence is destroyed there in chapter 44, verse 1. And he commanded the steward of the house, saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put each man money in the mouth of his sack. Okay, as you send them away, he is testing the character of his brothers again. Fill their sacks up with as much grain that they can possibly carry, and also put their money on their sack again. He would not send them away empty. He would not leave them to go that way. But also put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his grain money, so that he did to the word that Joseph has spoken. He said, notice to Benjamin, my silver cup, the one that I drink from, put in his sack, in Benjamin's sack. And as soon as the morning dawned, the men were sent away, they and their donkeys. And when they had gone out from the city, they were not yet far off, that Joseph said to the steward, get up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Now he's saying, go after them and ask them, why have you repaid evil for the good that they've received? Is this not this one, the one from which my Lord drinks and with which he indeed practices divination? You have done evil in so doing. Why have you taken the cup of Joseph where he practices divination? You see, the Egyptians would use a special cup and they would, from the cup that they would drink now, they would practice divination by observing the liquid in that cup. So he was saying, why did you take the cup that I practiced divination with? 
Well, why did you take what was precious or needed or valuable or useful for me? Now, everything that Joseph is doing here, I want you to understand this. This is all now guided by the hand of God. This is Joseph testing the hearts of his brothers to bring them to complete repentance now. And in verse 7, in verse 6 and 7, it says, So he overtook them, he spoke to them the same words, and he said to them, Why does my Lord say these words? Far be it from us that your servants would do such a thing. He said, We would never do such a thing. Well, why are you accusing us of this? And in fact, look, we brought back to you the money from the land of Canaan, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks. How then? Could we steal silver and gold from your Lord's house? How is it that you think that we can do this if we brought the money back? They're protesting their own innocence. Well, we didn't do this. In fact, notice what we did do. We did bring the money back. With whomever of your servants is found, notice, very bold, they say this, let him die. We also will be my Lord's servants. Whoever you find this cup with, let him die. And the rest of us, we're going to be your servants. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. This is how the servant responded. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and the rest of you shall be blameless. He said, okay, that's a deal then. Whoever I find it with, that's going to be my slave. The rest, I'm going to let go. You will be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack to the ground and each opened his sack. So each searched and he began with the oldest and left off with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. You see how they're overwhelmed there in verse 13? They went searching from youngest to oldest, finding who had stolen the cup. And they found it in Benjamin's sack. But to their response, notice what they do. They tore their clothes. Years ago, notice what they did. They tore Joseph's robe. Now they te they're tearing their own robe. And when someone would tear their robe, you know, it was a sign of, it was a sign of sorrow. It was a sign of remorse. It, it was a sign of despair as if someone would have died. They would then tear robes of their own selves. They loaded their donkeys and they returned now to the city. It's important that we look at this because now the idea of either, either hurting their father or hurting their brother Benjamin made them feel as bad as if someone had died. What do you see here? A significant change of heart and attitude. Now they really do care about their father. Now they really do care about their brother. Now they have compassion. Now they have a change of heart. Now they're not just interested with self. When you're interested with just yourself, you're not going to care about other people because you're going to put yourself first every single time. But you see here in their remorse and tearing their robe, what are they showing? We care about our father. We care about Benjamin. They're overwhelmed at this now sign of the cup in his sack. And notice the confession that happens. It wasn't only the conviction or the confrontation, but it's also the confession here. In verse 14, so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there, and they fell before him on the ground. They returned, again falling to the ground, the dream becoming a reality again. And Joseph said to him, what deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I certainly practiced divination? He was disguising himself as an Egyptian. Then Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? Judah's responding now. Judah is being the leader here. What shall we speak or what shall we clear? How shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Notice he's trusting. God has brought this upon us. God is punishing us for our sins. We have no excuses. We, we cannot clear ourselves. We can't prove our innocence. How can, we, how can we explain this? That's what they're saying. And notice what Judah says, here we are, my Lord's slaves. We're your slaves, both we and he also of whom you, the cup was found. And they didn't come here demanding justice. You know what this was? A humble plea for mercy. 
They weren't saying it wasn't us. They didn't try to explain anything. Now they're just crying out for mercy. You know what it shows here? Humility, a change of heart. When you always want to explain yourself, oftentimes it's birthed from pride. But here they came asking for mercy. They're, they were humble. They had come to the end of themselves, which was the beginning of God now. This is where God starts to reconcile this relationship when they humble themselves. You know, we have to ask the Lord, Lord, bring us to the end of ourselves because that's the beginning of God. That's how reconciliation happens. True reconciliation. When we don't want to justify ourselves for the wrong that we've done, but now we're asking for mercy. If you always want to justify yourself for the wrong that's been committed, then reconciliation is not going to happen. Ask the Lord for mercy. Ask him for forgiveness. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Joseph responds, the man in whose hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go in peace to your father. And that's what he says. No, not all of you are staying. Just Benjamin and the rest, you're going to leave. Go back to your father. Leave your brother behind another test to find out whether or not they were selfish at heart. What happened years prior, over 20 years prior? What did they do to Joseph? Oh, we don't care. As long as we're safe, it doesn't matter. They could have gone back and said, you know what, Father? What you suspected happened. An animal, a Benjamin. Or, you know, he was held as a prisoner or he was held captive. This was a test to find out if they really loved Benjamin. If there was any love in their hearts for their father. You know what's the first sure sign of repentance? Not only is it humility, but it's also love. Do you really love other people? Or are you just filled with love for self? Do you love people? Do you want to serve people or do you want to use them? Do you want to use them? Be careful. You don't want to use people to promote yourself. You don't want to use people to advance yourself. Joseph was testing the intentions of them. I want to find out if in their heart there's some love there. And Judah came near to him. And notice what he's going to say here. This is amazing because this is a plea. He's interceding for his brother. And he said, oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are like even like Pharaoh. You have the same power. You are as powerful as Pharaoh. Please do not let your anger burn against me. My Lord asked, verse 19, his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? You asked us this. And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead. Now think about what Joseph is thinking when they're now retelling him what happened and hearing about how they think he's dead, but he's right in front of them. And he alone is left of his mother. He's the only one of the same mother, the youngest brother, Benjamin. And his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, you demanded this, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad can't leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. He can't leave because if he leaves, his father's going to die. But he demanded again, but you said to your servants, unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him your words of my Lord. We told him this. We told him the conditions when we went back the first time. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. When he told us to come back, we reminded him, verse 26, but we said, we cannot go down if our youngest brother is with us. We will go down for we may not see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And this is now ministering to the heart of Joseph. Now they're not speaking from just the head. Now they're not just speaking from head knowledge or excuses or from a cold heart. Now they're sharing their heart. Now they're telling the truth. And he says here, this is what our father told us. My wife gave me two sons 
And the other one went out from me. And I said, surely he's torn to pieces. And I haven't seen him since. They're speaking about Joseph. Now he's finding out, that's what you told my dad, that I was torn into pieces? He's realizing what his dad thinks about him now. That this is a whole family dynamic of reconciliation that's about to happen, but not before humility. Not before confession, not before conviction, not before confrontation. A lot of times we want to see this happen in our families or even in our own lives. But unless there's conviction, confrontation, and confession, you won't see reconciliation. These things must happen. You can't have peace without purity. We, talk about, we talked about that on Sunday. Verse 29, but if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. He's saying, but if you take him, if something happens to me and if he dies, I'll be a grieving white-haired man that goes down in sorrow to the grave. He, he's retelling Judah now to Joseph what happened as they had this conversation with their father. But notice the heart here of Judah. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life. Notice, if I don't return with my brother, then my life is held accountable. He says, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, verse 31, that he will die. So your servant will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. I'll be responsible. Why? Verse 32, for your servant became surety. Another word for surety is guarantee. Because I became the guarantee for Benjamin. I said that I would take care of him. I'm going to be guilty to blame forever for the, the lad to my father saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. And here you see the illustration of self-sacrificial love in verse 33. And notice what Joseph, what Judah is saying to Joseph. You know what he's saying? Let me stay instead. Let me be the substitute. Let me offer myself in his place. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead. Circle the word instead. Let me be his substitute. Let me pay the price so others can go free. This is Judah here of the tribe of the nation of Israel. Instead of this lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? He offered himself instead of Benjamin. Let me stay in his place. Do you see here what you see in the lives of the brothers? Real care, real compassion for Benjamin and for also their father. This was a revelation of a character change. This was a revelation of transformation in their heart. They were not the same brothers as they were years prior. They would not abandon their brother anymore. They who once sold their brother were now willing themselves to be sold. Their hearts had changed. They didn't care primarily about themselves. They said, how can we go back without our brother? Let me stay instead. You know what Judah distinguished himself for here as we look at it, as one that was willing to be the substitutionary sacrifice out of love for his father and for his brethren. He said, let me be that substitute. Let me be that sacrifice. This is true self-sacrificial love. Don't blame them. I'll take the blame. In 1 John 3, 16, we know what the apostle says. By this we know love because he laid his life down for us that we ought to also lay our life down for the brethren. What was Judah willing to do? He was willing to be the sacrifice himself as the innocent for the guilty and become the most Christ-like of all his brothers. We later see that he was the ancestral, now tribal leader that would be connected to the Messiah. Jesus is called the lying of the tribe of where? Judah, the one that would sacrifice himself for his brothers and love for the father, 
from that ancestry line came the one Messiah who offered himself because of love for the Father and for us to be the substitute for our sins and guilt so that we can experience freedom because of grace. That is the lying of the tribe of Judah, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is our substitute. Well, what do we learn from this chapter today? That we ought to be careful how you handle your relationships. Would you be careful how you handle your relationships? And remember this, the truth will always come out. I'm going to give you three R's that you would remember. Maybe even write them down when it comes to relationships. Number, number one, if you're seeking reconciliation, repent. But repent for what you've done wrong. We always expect someone else to repent first. You be the first to repent. You acknowledge what you have done wrong. Instead of saying they need to repent, you repent for what you've done wrong. Take ownership. Not only repent, but also, number two, responsibility. Take responsibility for what you did. Take responsibility for your actions. Don't expect other people to, hey, I have to take responsibility for my actions first, and then we'll see what happens. No, take responsibility for the actions of what you did. Don't expect other people to do it first. And then notice the third R is results. Then after you've repented, after you've taken responsibility, after you humble yourself, then it will yield results. What kind of results? Results of reconciliation. Results of reconciliation. What does James tell us during trials? James 1.19. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Repent for what you did. Take responsibility for your actions. For the wrath of man, the wrath of man, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Stop blaming other people. Keep short accounts with God and with other people. That's why we stay, that way we stay pure and blameless in heart and mind before Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray.